Well, good morning. It's a great day to be worshiping in the Lord's house this morning. My name is Rob Lewis. I am the uh, teaching pastor at the Calvary campus. And uh, as always, I am honored to be able to fill the pulpit here at the Owasso campus. And uh, as uh, Brad mentioned, Pastor Chris is hanging down in Southern California right now with the ambassadors. And uh, it's, it's an exciting time in the life of First Baptist Owasso. Uh, we just finished up some crazy weeks of VBS and some cool things happening on both campuses. And so I just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing here. Um, in Owasso, and thank you for partnering with us in, 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 at Calvary as well in Tulsa. Um, and anytime you want to come hang out down there, that's cool too. I'll come visit you as much as I can, but it'd be cool if you come visit me there too. We're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis this morning. So if you have your word, turn to chapter 37. And we're going to be looking at uh, the well-known narrative of Joseph and his, his dream. And we're going to take a look at the early life of young Joseph and glean through it a couple of things, one of which we're going to focus on uh, the character of God. And we can see uh, from this scripture, uh, one of the, the, the characters concerning the nature of God is that he works all things for good according to his perfect wisdom and decree. And we're going to see that here, uh, that, that God would see it fitting that Joseph would start his life here uh, in, in, the, in the work of God in a pit, and it would prepare him for a palace. We know that he would go there one day, but right here we see that he, he is going to endure some suffering for a time. And so the, the idea is, is how is God working through this? What does is, what is the providence of God look like, and how does that relate to our lives as well? And so I want to turn your attention to a couple of items. Uh, one is in your seat, and something to talk about is what it's called here. Very good stuff for discussing later, and I highly recommend doing that. That's something that um, we as a church are trying to be more intentional about and focus on is not just coming and hearing the word once, but let's take this stuff home. Let's discuss it with our families. Let's interact. Let's pray uh, and continue to glean the scriptures for what God would have us um, to understand. But also in your bulletin, there's a section uh, that is called uh, Words to Know, and it specifically addresses the providence of God today. You know, it's just a little snippet. It's not going to go super deep, but it's really important important for us to begin uh, to, con- or to continue to wrestle with these concepts. So I just wanted to make you aware of those two items. But the doctrine that I want to defend this morning is God's providence brings about salvation uh, on purpose at times through suffering for our good and God's glory. And I really want us to have this in our mind as we get going because we're going to see this throughout this story. But this is, this is truly a biblical principle that there is nothing outside of God's control. There is nothing left to chance. You know, there's a lot of people uh, who, who, who think that everything is just happening. There's no real rhyme or reason. There's no direction that we're headed. But if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, you are committed to the fact that God is actually in control. And what that means is that there's no variable that is left out of his control, that he's considered everything. And we'll talk more about what that looks like. And so we have a, a, a sovereign God who is in control, but we also have a God who is working through his wisdom, providence, which means he's going to provide, he's going to take care of his people. And so we can rest assured that there is nothing left to chance. And this is, this is part of what we'll glean through this morning's scripture, but I want to start with one idea that I also believe is a biblical concept, and that is the plans of God are inscrutable to us. That means that we can't scrut them. That's helpful, wasn't it? 
the idea is, is that God's ways are so above us, that he is like us in one way. You know, uh, Jesus Christ became a man, but in many ways he is not like us. He is so far above us. His ways are, are incomprehensible to us. And, and, and so we, from a limited perspective, uh, are tempted to look at God and say, you know what, your plan's good, but it could be better if. And who are we to ever question God in that way? We are so myopic. We, we, we cannot see the big picture. And I'm reminded of the analogy. Uh, it's actually a story, and we're not sure if it's true or not, but I like it as an analogy of, of, of Sir Isaac Newton when he was writing in the early days, uh, you know, figuring out physics, uh, that he had written and studied for, for years and years and had some paper manuscripts on his desk, and his dog Diamond came by and knocked the desk, and the candle fell over and burnt up the manuscripts. And, and Newton says to his dog, you can't even be begin to understand what you just did. And I think it's a good analogy that just as, as, as Newton's dog couldn't understand what destruction he had just caused, we are in no way qualified to look up to God and say, your plan's all right, it would be better if. We, we have no, no way to do that. So I want us to have that in our mind as we begin this, this uh, biblical narrative here in chapter 37, looking at Joseph, relying on the fact that God is good and that he is in control and he's bringing about salvation on purpose. So if you will, stand with me and we'll get into our text this morning. Chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. The scripture says this, Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons uh, of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report from them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. When he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words." Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept his saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them saying, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the, one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it. He rescued him from out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, 
Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand, restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And when they took him, they threw him in the pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bringing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carrying it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This is what we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. This, his father, thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So there's so much here that we don't have time to unpack. So I want to focus on a a couple of things this morning. So we'll make three stops. We're going to take a look at the context. We'll take a look at the divine setup. And three, we'll look at the takeaway. Uh, So I want to give us a little bit of context here. So remember, it all started with a guy named Abraham who was Abram first, but God says, uh, come away from your kin people, uh, go to a land and I will show you. And so what happened is Abraham had two sons. The first son was Ishmael, in which we see here these Ishmaelites, that's exactly who they're talking about. So he had that first son, but God said, no, the blessing's not going to come through him, it's going to come through Isaac. And so Abraham had a second son named Isaac. Well, Isaac had two sons, uh, Esau and Jacob. And we remember their feud, and last week we talked about uh, Jacob wrestling with God, and he actually had his name changed to Israel. And there was a beautiful thing that happened there when God brought Jacob to the end of himself and, and gave him a new name. But Jacob, who is now Israel, has 12 sons. One of his sons is Joseph, and this is who we're talking about right here. So the father in this story is the same Jacob that wrestled with God. And this is the same uh, guy who's, who's the dad of Joseph in this context who's weeping over his son uh, presumably being torn to pieces by a wild animal. And so what we've seen is that all throughout Scripture— that God sees it fit to use messed up people to bring about his purposes and his, his plan. Yeah, I am encouraged by that. If you look, we're, we're going to get into it next week, but go to chapter 38, Judah and Tamar. If you've never read that, that'll blow your mind. And so you just sit there and you think, God, you, know, you come to the scripture and you, you, it's just a temptation for us to say, you know what, this is about people who've got it all together and this is the holiest of holy, the righteous people. They, were, they earned the right to be used by God. Let me look at how different I am from them. But when we actually open the scriptures up, what we see is we see people who are just as messed up as we are. 
And God sees it fit to be glorified through using ordinary means, natural circumstances, and messed up people like you and me to bring him glory and to be a part of his plan of redemption. And so this is the context that we find ourselves in here. And this is also a biblical principle that God is never surprised. When you and I sin, God is not like, where did that come from? I never saw that coming. He's like, I expected that fully. And, and, and this is an idea that we must continue to put in front of us that there is more grace and mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And so we hold this close to us when we read these scriptures, when we read these narratives, that one, we don't judge them as if we are better than them, but two, we look at them and say, thank God that you, Father, see it, see it fitting to use people just like this to bring about your salvation. So we see this is the context um, that we find ourselves in. But I want to talk about the divine setup. And it's interesting because what God allows is a few things. The first thing that God allows is he allows the vision. So what we have to see is that just like any other revelation, God knows it first. And then whoever the prophet is, they will know it second. And then they go out and they speak that. So what happens is that God allows this insight into future blessing. So the vision was good and it was true. Right, So Joseph gets some insight from God, and it was true. Uh, but first, God knew it, then Joseph. It wasn't like Joseph went and he studied and he searched, and then he found this is what was going to happen, and he came back and told his brothers and his father and his mother. No, what had happened was God revealed it to him, and if God didn't reveal him to it, he would never know. But so what's also interesting is that he doesn't bring up the part where he's going to be in prison, and he's going to be a slave, and he's going to... You know, Matthew Henry, one of the great commentators, he says that, isn't it interesting in our youth we only focus on the good things in our life? We don't know whether or not he got any insight into that or not. But what we see is that God gives a vision, God gives some truth, and it was actually what was going to happen. So God allowed that. But also what we see is maybe some immaturity. Uh, we can't speculate too far, but perhaps there's even some arrogance here. So what God has is he gives some information to this 17-year-old boy who seems to not really be a very good politician. He seems to be definitely more of a prophet than a politician. So instead of saying, wow, God, thank you for that insight. I'll look forward to serving you humbly. He's like, hey, bro, God, I got a story for you. <laughs> You're going to worship me. You're going to bow down to me. Hey, mom and dad, I had this dream the other night. Gather around, everybody. And dad's like, what? And especially in this honor culture, you, didn't, I mean, you, just, you don't talk to your parents like that. Hey, you know what's, what's going to happen is you're going to bow down to me. Look forward to that day. You guys count it down, right? I mean, it's like it was true, but it maybe wasn't the most tactful delivery, right? And so I would say he's a good prophet, not such a good politician. But God allows that. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful thing that we see is that God chooses um, to, to use this 17-year-old boy and, and to bring about this plan. And, and so what we also see is that God is going to allow for some maturity, and so I want us to just put in our minds, you know, what is it that God has given us insight into um, that we're not quite ready for, but that we can be praying for God to mature us in? Because I think this is something that Joseph would also face, is that he's a young man, and it's going to be years off before God would finally, you know, show him exactly what he's working in this plan. But God's preparing him, and God is maturing him. The Joseph that's going to approach his brothers later on in the narrative, whenever he's actually standing before them, and he's this high-powered uh, guy in Egypt— He's able to give them grace. 
He's, he's no longer this, you know, maybe an arrogant guy that we kind of see here. Um, some commentaries disagree with that and say that maybe he wasn't arrogant. Some do. I don't know. I'm not going to try to speculate too far. But it seems to be at least some immaturity here. And what Joseph would show later is a deep maturity when he forgives his brothers uh, and doesn't hold it against them even when his dad is gone, right? And we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But the beauty here is that God sees it fit to give the vision. He allows the vision. He allows this arrogance, this immaturity. But he also allows favoritism. And what we see is that there is favoritism. Jacob was kind of a mama's boy, if you remember, and there was some favoritism that's going on. It seems like he's carried on this family tradition, and now he's giving some favoritism to his son Joseph, and it doesn't go unnoticed by the other brothers. It's like, yeah, yeah, he made him a nice coat and and all these things, and it seems to be uh, every time that Joseph goes out, he gets a report and kind of comes back home and tattletales on his brothers. And it's just like even more fuel on the fire of why I'm not going to like you, right? Uh, anyone who's got any siblings may relate to this. I can relate to this a little bit. You know, uh, I, I had a, a younger sister, and it seemed like um, she could do anything and get away with just about anything. And you would try to, I try to go tell on her, and they'd be like, "Oh, no way that she did that. She's so sweet." And I'm like, "No, for real." You know, and I can remember this one time. My dad was um, uh, a small engine repair mechanic, and we went and did this house call and uh, fixed this lady's lawnmower. Well, while my dad's out there fixing the lawnmower, us kids would get invited sometimes into these people's homes, and we're just hanging out, this old lady, and she's like got this cool coin collection, and I was like really into coin collecting at that time, and I still am, so if you got any old ones, let me see them. Uh, and, and she gives my sister these cool old coins, like half dollars, silver half dollars and stuff, and I'm like, hey, can I have one? And she's like, no, I really only have enough to give her. I say, what? You know, but you, see, you can see this. This is just human nature. We get jealous. We see things that are happening, and, and, and it, it's, not, um, it's not hard for us to relate to the brothers of Joseph in this. This guy's got a lot of privilege. He's got a lot of good things going for him. He's not the most mature. He's not very political. He's kind of in your face, telling these dreams, but God allows it. And, and we, can, we can ask, well, what would happen you know, what if God came down and fixed all of this? You know, what if God came down from heaven and he's like, you know what, I've been watching and I realized that, uh, Jacob, you're messing this whole thing up. You're being kind of a terrible dad right now. You know, what, what you need to do is treat everyone equally. Don't do this favoritism stuff anymore. Get to working out some coats for everyone else. You've got 11 more coats to make, right? And you, Joseph, yes, I told you that, but bro, you're like really not using that well. What if God came and did that? Okay, I'm going to go back now. You guys know what to do. Problem solved. But that's not how God operates. God sees it fit to use natural events to bring about his purposes. And part of these natural events is messed up people. He's using favoritism to bring about his purpose. Does that make God evil? Does that make him the author of it? No, but he is so great. He's so powerful. He is able to use these messed up people to bring about his plan. So we look at this and we say, okay, what is God doing here? But there's providence in this. There's providence in God uh, bringing this caravan, right? How interesting. It's in uh, verse 25 uh, when you look at it. It says, Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way uh, to carry it down to Egypt. So let me ask you a question. Uh, Was it God's plan to get Joseph to Egypt? Yes. Was it going to happen? Yes. Here's a beautiful insight into the providence of God that just at the right time, a caravan passes by. I mean, we can't speculate 
uh, too far in this either and saying, well, what would happen if the caravan didn't show up? We don't know, but possibly it would have been a, a different outcome. Maybe the brothers would have tried to kill him. I don't know. But what we do know is the providence of God saw it fit that at that moment a caravan passes by heading to Egypt. What did Joseph need? A ride to Egypt. God prepared that for him. And so God planned the pit. The pit was planned. This was not some accident uh, that God didn't see coming. God literally planned the pit for Joseph's life. So in his journey from the pit to the palace, the pit was part of it. So God is so far beyond us that he can use natural circumstances and events to bring about his sovereign plan. And we see this with with, uh, Nehemiah. Remember when Nehemiah was so concerned about the wall? He wanted to go back and build it, but he couldn't get out of the king's service. And so months goes by, and his burden just begins to grow, and he wants to go back and build the wall until the point where he stands before the king, and the king says, what's going on? Something's grieving you. And he's able to tell the king his concerns. But it wasn't some miracle. It was God literally working through natural events to give him that opportunity to go back and do the work he had his heart set to. But this is what we see over and over. God is able to do this. So the pit was planned. And what we can, what we can see is that, is that God is doing something to use our temporal suffering for our good and his glory. What we will see is God doing something to Joseph for Joseph, and for the betterment of everyone else around him. And it's this beautiful image that we can't forget. So now his brothers, right, so they've got, they've got this plan to kill him first, and then Reuben's like, hey, like, don't do that, right? Don't kill him. And it seems like Reuben uh, wanted to come back and get him, like put him in the pit, let, let the boys cool off a little bit. I'll come back and get him and bring him back to dad, and hopefully we'll be done with this whole mess. Well, when he, he's, he's got that idea, then Judah... Who's Judah? Well, we'll look later, verse 30, uh, chapter 38, Judah and Tamar. But Judah is, is the line through which Jesus Christ would come. Well, what's Judah's idea? Verse 26, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. So it was Judah's plan to sell him. It's just crazy to look at the word and see how God is using people who are messed up to bring about his plan of redemption in time. And you can never talk about uh, progress unless you have an ideal state identified. So what's the ideal state? Where are we heading? There's a lot of cultures, and there's been a lot of cultures in the past, uh, that don't believe that we're actually heading anywhere. Everything is just cyclical, right? History is just repeating itself. Uh, and, and there's cultures, you know, like they believe in reincarnation. Well, what does that mean? Well, you've been here before, just you're in a different form. And so when you're, when you're born into poverty or you're born crippled or lame, it's it, part of the caste system is it's, it's that that's you paying for the sins of your past life. And so they actually justify themselves in not helping those types of people because if you help those types of people, they're not able to pay their retribution they owe for their past sins. Isn't that crazy? And you get this cycle. It's like, well, if you do good this time, maybe you can become something else in another life. And there is no point. There's no end. There's no goal. It's just cyclical. And in that type of worldview, you can never talk about progress. But in the Bible... What we see is one of the primary themes is God's plan of redemption being actualized. There's actually an end. Do you know what that end is? Is that Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to reign forever. 
and anyone who believes in him will be saved, right? That's what Jesus said whenever he raised Lazarus from the dead. He says, he says this is what it is. He goes, I am the resurrection and the life, and, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the truth, that we believe we're heading towards something. History has a purpose. History has a goal. And that is to glorify Jesus Christ and see him reigning forever. And we to enjoy God forever and to honor him and to glorify and worship him forever. So this is the point, is God has a plan. There's nothing outside of his providence. And God's providence brings about salvation on purpose. At times through suffering, for our good and for his glory that is absolutely something we can take to the bank. So I wanted to put us into this perspective here. What is your pit? What pit are you in? This is, this is something that we can learn from when we look at the, this biblical narrative here is because that there, there's lots of times in which it's really hard for us to see where are we headed? What's, what's going on? What's our part in this? When we look at Abraham, it took 25 years for Abraham to realize the first step of the promise. The promise was you're going to have a land, you're going to have lots of people. Oh yeah, look up there, see all those stars? If you could count them, that's how much your offspring will be, right? That's, and he's like, uh, let's start with one. <laughs> I'm nearly a hundred, like just give, I'm looking for one here. And then he gets the one, and then God's like, well, go kill that one. He's like, he's like this is crazy, right? But this is what God is doing, is he's, he's bringing people through these times to show them that there's something beyond themselves, that God will be glorified even through our suffering, even through our waiting, even through our pits. And so if we're talking about from a pit to a palace, we have to recognize this, that, that God is actively bringing this about. So if there's no pit, there's no palace. If there isn't this time of suffering, there will be no time of redemption later. And so this wasn't an accident. This was actually part of God's plan because if there's no palace, there's no provision. And God is always working through our suffering. And you may say, how? How is God working through our suffering? Well, two ways. Two examples I'll give quickly. One is God is working through our suffering in our sins. And you, you may say, how? What does that mean? How is God going to work through my suffering and my sin? Didn't I bring that on myself? Yeah, probably. But here's the thing. If God did not cause suffering when you're living in unrepentant sin, that would be a bad thing for you. It is a good thing that the Holy Spirit convicts us, and it's also a good thing that there's natural consequences for sin to bring us back to God, right? You know, we, we uh, parents, uh, we, we like to use natural consequences to discipline and to teach our children, right? But some natural consequences are too great, right? Some college credits are too expensive to earn. You could say, yeah, you know, let them play in the street. Uh, it may be a little dangerous, but they'll learn. <laughs> well... There's some things that would be better if we didn't get exposed to, right? And so there's some things that we have to look at when we're living in sin. If God does not convict our hearts, there's deeper and worse things that we can do until there's a point that we come in which we see in the Bible where our destruction is actually the best thing that could happen for us. Do you remember uh, the, the, the idea with Sodom and Gomorrah? The best thing that could happen was those people be destroyed, and you think, how? But there is a point in which we can become so corrupt that God's most graceful move is to eliminate us. So there's a point in which God works through our suffering and sin and that he makes us suffer when we're sinning. For us believers, we cannot sin and enjoy it. We cannot not continue there. I know personally in my own life, any time that I've lived uh, in sin and I've tried to do my own thing, yeah, I've been, I'm a believer, I've been a teacher, and then I get caught in sin and I, I think, well, maybe it'll be different for me, but it's not true. 
And what God does is he chases you down. He burns you up until you say, I give up. What do you need? What do you, what, how, how can I confess this? How can I get back? God will use that suffering for our good and his glory. But two, he can use the circumstances in our lives to do it as well. And so I encourage you to let, let the pit shape you. I believe that, the pit, that that pit shaped Joseph as well. The Joseph that we'll see later on in Genesis is not the Joseph that we're seeing right now. Let the pit shape you. Because there's things that God can teach you through your suffering. Things he can teach you about yourself and things he's going to teach you about himself and his provision and his godliness and his guidance. And, and, you know, we sit back and we think, man, this is a really tough spot in my life. I can't see any good reason for why God would allow me to go through this suffering. Once again, we're back to being Diamond, uh, Isaac Newton's dog. We are not qualified to say that there is no good reason for the suffering I currently am experiencing. There may very well be good reason for God to allow that suffering right now. Uh, a number of examples that we could go through, but uh, anybody ever had uh, a girlfriend that they wanted to marry or a boyfriend that they wanted to marry, and then they look back and you're like, glad that didn't work out, right? But the heartache, the tears, right, in that, how could you, God? <laughs> and then it's like later on, you're like, thank you, Lord. I was not qualified to plan my life out at 16, 17 years old, right? I am not qualified at 32 to plan my life. You keep reminding yourself, I am not qualified at whatever to plan my own life out. And so thank God that he brings suffering. Because through suffering, we can be refined, become more like Jesus Christ, but also he is shaping us for the use that he has for us in the kingdom so that he will be glorified. So don't run from suffering. Recognize suffering. Let it shape you. Let your pit shape you. And so I want to close with this final thought. It is, it is a beautiful thing to look at the providence of God. And I think that this is the gospel. Um, that we, we worship a God who is actively working through natural and free events to bring about redemption. That it isn't an accident that Jesus Christ went to the cross. It's not like, I hope this works out. God had a plan, and he was actually bringing it to reality in time. When Jesus Christ was born, it wasn't an accident that he was born when he was born. When he went to the cross, it wasn't an accident that he was actually crucified by those Roman soldiers by request of these Jews. Now, does that eliminate human freedom? No. There's a great big philosophical discussion we could have on that. But what we see time and time again in scriptures is that God is working actively, in time, to bring out his plan of redemption. He is not passive. He is not a dead idol like some worship who are not able to do anything, right? As the Old Testament says often, it says, with part of the wood, you split it up and you bake a meal and create a fire and warm yourself with the other piece of the wood, you make an idol and put it up on your mantle and pray to it. That's not the God we serve. We don't serve a dead, mute God. We serve a God who is capable of meeting our needs. But beyond that, he is meeting the needs we don't even know. He is actively bringing about our salvation on purpose. So I want you to have in your mind today the ways in which God may have you in a pit right now. And what would he be showing you while you're there? How might that pit shape you? How might it give you clarity? Because it's just like C.S. Lewis says that God speaks to us in the good times, but it's like he speaks to us through a megaphone in our bad times, right? In our pain and in our suffering. When we stop 
and we actually say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to think? What do you want me to know? That's when we're able to actually surrender ourselves to God. It's when he sometimes speaks to us through suffering. And if you stand, I want to close this morning. We have two options. Every one of us is on a journey, and every one of us starts in a pit. And for the believers in the room, our journey from the pit to the palace happens thus, that we were once dead in our sins, separated from God, but through the grace of God, we are saved, and therefore we are heading towards a palace to live with the king forever. It's not a temporary palace like Joseph will live in eventually. It's an eternal palace with the king. But God may see it fit that for us as believers that we have some temporal struggles, that we have a temporal pit even after we've been saved. And that's okay. God will use that. He will use it to break us down. He'll use it to humble us. He will use it to lead us to repentance. He will, he will, he will use it for our good and for his glory. But for the unbeliever, you start in a pit of sin and death, and you never get out of it. Without Jesus Christ, you will die there and have no life eternally. There will be no palace dwelling for you with the king. So I pray for us this morning that we will see the reality of that. We're all on a journey from a pit to a palace. But only the believers in Jesus Christ will actually benefit from the true palace dwelling with the king of the universe forever who has died in our place to save us from our sin and to rescue us from the true pit.